Well, as you <clears throat> return to your seats, I want to invite you to open with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. I will say one of the harder things for me to do in life is um, to be with you on a Sunday morning as everyone's singing and, and not participate in singing. Good grief. That's challenging. Um, but for the sake of my voice, and hopefully to hold out to the end, um, Ecclesiastes 1 verse 12 through the end of chapter 2 is our text this morning. So last week, we began uh, a five-message study through the book of Ecclesiastes. And then this morning is, is number two of that. Uh, in 1 Timothy 4.13, Paul tells Timothy to give yourself to the public reading of God's word. And so we, we orient our service around uh, publicly reading God's word and then responding to that word. And so uh, typically we do that before the sermon as well, uh, reading the sermon text. But because uh, I am going to read through the entirety of our text uh, through the sermon, um, for this time, for the public reading of God's Word right before the sermon, I just want to read the last few verses of chapter 2. So uh, that's on page 554, if you've picked up a red Bible. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 24 through 26. So uh, one more time, if you're able, would you stand so that we might honor the reading of God's holy, inspired, inerrant word. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 24. There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, Who can eat or have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. Would you remain standing for prayer? Father, would you use the preaching of your word now to do all that you desire to do as, as my prayer through this book for myself, for us as a congregation. Lord, would you free us? Would you free us from the need, from the desire to try to extract from this world what can only be found in Christ? And would you use this morning as another step toward that end, we pray, for our good and for Christ's honor, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. One, one of the difficulties of preaching through a book of the Bible over several messages, which is, which is what we most often do, unless we're taking a very small book and, and doing it in one message, is that sometimes you have to get to the end of the book. To, to get the whole message. I think Ecclesiastes best works that way. I mean, if uh, you were to, able to read through all 12 chapters, you would see that the preacher, uh, the, the author, the narrator of this book, he, he draws his ultimate conclusions at the end. And so, um, therefore, along the way, what we're getting is just bits and pieces of his argument that, that builds on one another. It may have been that that feeling of 
lecturing along the way, I'm still looking for the final answer that, that Martin Luther ran into in 1527. is one of my favorite Luther quotes. Of course, it's hard to read anything by Luther and not say it's favorite, one of my favorite Luther quotes because I just love everything he says. Um, Al Mohler one time said of Martin Luther, he never had an unarticulated thought. Uh, I think that's really funny. And, um, but, but Solomon, or, or Luther, writing about um, Ecclesiastes in 1527, what happened was uh, the plague came through and some university students stayed behind. They had nowhere to go. So he decides he's going to lecture on Ecclesiastes. And so he's in the midst of it. And he writes, Solomon the preacher is giving me a hard time. As though he begrudged anyone lecturing on him. Um, <laughs> I think I felt that way before too. Uh, going through certain books of the Bible. Um, and that's why in this book I, I, I basically said last week. If you will, just, just hold on with me for five weeks. Um, if, if you find the message that, that we, we looked at last week, one that, that felt crushing, then, then hold on for five weeks and, and see if you'll not see that what Ecclesiastes holds out for us is something far better than what you're chasing. And if you find it um, to be freeing, to, to say to you, you don't have to chase after those things that you know really don't deliver in the end anyway, then, then hold on for the whole five weeks because I think we'll find ourselves strengthened even more. And so... This morning, then, is just part two of this, this five-message series we're going to look at through this book. So just by way of reminder, uh, last week, as we looked at Ecclesiastes 1, 1 through 11, what I argued is that the message of that prologue, and, and really the whole book in, in some measure, is that there's no lasting significance or gain. Gain is the word that uh, the preacher uses throughout this, this book. There's no lasting gain to be had under the sun. By that, we mean this side of eternity so you don't have to worry about chasing after it. You see, on this side of Genesis 3, the world, the created order, it's, it's just not made in such a way that we can extract from this world lasting gain. So that, that at the end, you know, our, our, our ledger is in the black, right? This world is not made in a way that we can find lasting meaning or happiness or significance or gain throughout this life so that we can, you know, make our mark on this world and find that that, that we have this lasting meaning, that we're going to be remembered long after we da- die, and that's somehow, you know, deeply satisfying, lasting contentment can be found in that. The world is just not made for that on this side of Genesis 3. The reality is that death awaits all of us. It's this unavoidable truth and reality that comes to us. And so, if you do, then, try to extract from life this um, lasting satisfaction, maybe always telling yourself, once I achieve this or get that or do whatever, then I'm going to find that, that, that I have it, this, this lasting satisfaction. You're going to be deeply disappointed in the end. And the reason why is because, as the preacher says um, in, in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 1, uh, life is, is, is what the ESV translates as vanity. But, but the better idea there is not so much vanity as much as life is just a mist. It's a puff of smoke. It's, it's by, by chasing some kind of lasting gain in this world and lasting meaning and lasting happiness and significance simply only under the sun, only the sun of eternity, then, then it's like when you blow out the candle and there's that puff of smoke and you, it's like trying to grab it. It's there, you can see it, but as soon as you go to grab it, it's gone. There's really nothing there. That's, that's the message um, of Ecclesiastes in, in large measures to free us then from this. So, so you may have then last week's 
you know, kind of left thinking, well, then, you know, maybe it was, you know, Thursday or whatever. Or Thursday was Thanksgiving. That doesn't really work. Say it was Tuesday, and, and, and you're driving home from work, and you thought to yourself, that was a, a pretty good day at work. You know, I really enjoyed that day. And then you thought, well, but I guess I should remind myself that I'm going to die and be forgotten, and everything I did today was like, you know, building a sandcastle down by the shore, you know, ready to be washed away, and so I guess I should just despair, you know. Well, well, well no. I, I mean, uh, does, it, does it mean that after a good day of work, then, that you can, you can drive home and, and um, you don't have to remind yourself, I'm going to die and be forgotten? Maybe. Right? If on your way home from work, you're thinking that was a good day of work, and you're putting all into that, and therefore I'm finally going to mean something, and therefore I finally am going to get the recognition that will bring my soul satisfaction, and therefore I'm to add on to it, then yes, that is a moment to remind yourself you're going to die and be forgotten, and it's like you're grasping at something that cannot be grasped. But... It does not mean that after a good day at work, you have to drive home in despair. Because actually, what the preacher does in Ecclesiastes, he gives us a pathway for joy. He gives us a pathway to say, I actually want you to enjoy this life, not to try to get out of it more than it can give. And that's really the message then of the second section of Ecclesiastes, chapter 1, verse 12, through the end of chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 26. And what we're going to see in our text this morning is that The preacher doesn't write Ecclesiastes merely because he's just sitting back in his chair, having reasoned all this out, you know, kind of writing in his journal. No, he writes this book because he made his own bitter pursuit of finding lasting gain, of finding lasting significance under the sun. And he pursued it in a way that most who ever lived could only dream of. In other words, if if, if you're thinking... If, if, if only I can get this, or if only I can do that, then, then that will finally bring satisfaction to my soul and lasting contentment. The preacher's saying, not only did I do it, but I did it better than you. Not only did I get it, but I got more than you're going for. And my message is, that's like a puff of smoke. It's, it's vanity. But what he wants us to do, and his message at the, in, in 112 through 226 is, but I want to change your perspective. I want to change your perspective from gain to gift. And with that change of perspective, the preacher's telling us, I can move you to a place where you can enjoy this life. And so he he narrates for us his journey through this from a first-person perspective. I did this, and then I did this, and then I did this. So what I'm going to do this morning is just kind of divide up the sermon into, uh, you know, three things, right? The, The context of his pursuit, the pursuit itself, and then the conclusion from his pursuit. So let's start there with number one. The context of the pursuit. In verses 12 and 13, <clears throat> the preacher gives us... It's, it's funny. Whenever you have a voice like this, um, I feel like everybody wants to clear their throat for you, don't they? Sorry about that. <clears throat> I feel like th- this, this reference isn't going to land on anyone, but I feel a bit like Casey Kasem. Um, if you, <laughs> like for the six of you who remember the top 40 countdown that Casey Kasem did. I feel like I should say, and now at number one, you know. Um, but nonetheless, I'll, I'll get back to the, the, the context here. Um, in verses 12 and, and the beginning of 13, he gives us the context of this. Here's who I am, and here's what I'm doing. Here's what he says. Uh, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart 
to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. So he's saying, here's who I am. I'm king over Israel. And and what I did is I applied my heart to seek out by wisdom all that's done under heaven. So, So first of all, right off the bat, if you're just already thinking, if only I had this status... That, that would really, that, that's kind of what my heart longs for. The preacher says, I'm writing this as king. I, I have a status that's greater than yours. I'm telling you, no. And, and here's what he did. He said, I exercised, I applied my wisdom. I'm going to actually pursue this. It, it, was, it was like this big project to figure out if life can actually bring satisfaction to our soul under the sun only. Well, in this context, he then describes some of his conclusions early here. The end of verse 13. I applied my heart to seek and search out by wisdom all that's done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I've seen everything that's done under the sun. and Behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. What he's saying to us is, as I've mentioned In Genesis 3, when God judged the world, he subjected it to futility. So the world itself is broken. Death and decay are reigning. Um, Even as we've been reminded this week of some deaths of of individuals we love, our body is is wasting away, the outer man is wasting away. And and we ourselves are are, are broken on this side of Genesis 3. Man needs to be redeemed. And and what that brokenness in man means, and what it means even as for believers, is that sometimes all of us tend to find ourselves pursuing what we most deeply want from a world that cannot give it. And it leaves us being frustrated. In fact, what you're going to read in chapter 2, verse 17, is the preacher says, I hated life. I hated life. You might say that's extreme, but, but I think what he's saying is, if you try to seek from this life only, under the sun, on this side of eternity, if, if you seek from this world what you most deeply need that it cannot give, you're only going to find yourself deeply frustrated. And I think even, even we can bear witness to this ourselves. I mean, how many times have you, have you kind of deceived yourselves? As I mentioned last week, almost like you're, you're holding a carrot out, you know, in front of yourself so that you can pursue this, this race of life. And you said to yourself, if only I had this, or if only I had that. And now you're at a place where you actually have it. And you're continuing to say to yourself, well, now, if only I had this. Or if only I had that. Well, that's proving the very point. Um, This is why the preacher says, um, uh, it's very unhappy business, verse 13, or verse 15, rather. What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. What he's saying is you cannot get everything out of this world that the world can't provide. You cannot make straight what excuse me, you cannot make straight what God has made crooked or, or you cannot uh, count what is lacking. You cannot amass gain out of something that cannot provide it. So, so that's the, the context. You have this king who's immensely wealthy, immensely wise, have every, every means provided for him. You have uh, the situation. He's, he's by wisdom. He's going to apply himself to see what can life give me? What can, can it bring the satisfaction if I pursue um, gain, lasting gain in this world? And then you have uh, the world itself. Uh, the world is 
crooked. It is uh, empty. It is not that which we can make straight. It's not that which can, we can count or amass gain. So that's the context. Number two, the pursuit of lasting gain. The pursuit of lasting gain. In, in 116, all the way down through 223, he's going to talk about his pursuit of gain. And basically what you're going to see is that he tried everything and he tried it well. He first began with wisdom. Now he's going to return to the topic of wisdom later and evaluate it some more. But he begins with this. We see in verses 16 through 18 of chapter 1. He says, I said in my heart, I've acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom, to know madness and folly. And I perceive that this is also but a striving after the wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. So his first attempt is to say, I just pursued wisdom, trying to amass as much wisdom. Already, he says, I I had more wisdom than than all who were before me. Now, I I mentioned last week, um, I was just going to refer to the author of this book as the preacher. He's a son of David, king of Jerusalem. Many have said this is Solomon. Some have said even if it's not Solomon, it could be another king who's kind of writing from Solomon's perspective or something like this. Um, But regardless... Uh, if it is Solomon or other, this is an individual who said, look, I have great wisdom. If it is Solomon, we know this is the wisest man at the time. And he said, I, I had wisdom. I, I had knowledge. And I found it to be lacking. In our own life, this might be the route of education. Maybe we say to ourselves sometime, if only I could get this degree or had that academic achievement. Or maybe if I were only renowned for my wisdom, then maybe I would be appreciated. I would be known by many. That would, that would satisfy my need for lasting significance. And again, when you hear his conclusion um, that this is vanity, a striving after the wind, what he's saying is it's like that, that mist, that, that puff of smoke. He mentions that with great knowledge, not only does it not provide for him that lasting gain, that lasting satisfaction, but he's like increasing knowledge actually increases sorrow. And don't we know this to be true? You know, we live in a time in world history where from our couches, we can know more about what's going on in the world than any time in world history. And, and I would dare say that if I could offer you to go back to a time when you knew less, you might take it. Right? Because hasn't it merely served to increase sorrow, to, to know all that's going on everywhere? I mean, I don't know. Maybe we are. Maybe we are, as a people, more divided or more at odds or more biting than at any time that's ever been in the history of the world. I doubt it. But it can feel like it, can't it? Because you see everything that people say. You hear all of their opposition. And so it goes on. So even he says this path of wisdom didn't do it. And even with greater wisdom came greater sorrow. Well, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 8, He runs through a great number of these things. Pleasure, alcohol, building projects, work and industry, riches, sex. He just runs through all of it. He says none of these did as well. Let's hear what he says. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. I said in my heart, come now. I will test you with pleasure. So there's pleasure. Enjoy yourself, he says to himself. But behold, this also is vanity, that puff of smoke. I said, of laughter, it's mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? 
I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. So he's now turning to alcohol. Maybe, maybe alcohol will be the means of providing this satisfaction, this lasting gain. He adds, my heart's still guiding me with wisdom. This is an interesting note, isn't it? What he's saying is, I don't want you to think that I pursued alcohol and just lost all my mental capacities. No, no, no. He's saying, I, I did this as an experiment. Right? I, I wanted to know the pleasure and the joy of alcohol, but my mind was still guiding me. My wisdom was still guiding me. I wanted to see. I wanted to give alcohol its fair shot. Is it really going to provide for me what I want? So it was, my mind, my heart was still guiding me with wisdom. Is this going to be it? And how to lay hold on folly. He adds at the end of verse 3, till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. What's so good? What's going to bring satisfaction in these few days? Verse 4, I made great works. So now we're to building projects. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted uh, in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions, now riches here, of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. So, so he's actually the wealthiest of all who had come before him. Verse 8, I also gathered for myself silver or gold, more riches, and the treasures of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, so here now sex, and the delight of the sons of man. In other words, and I think we really need to let this sink in, he pursued everything that we're tempted to think if only we had that. Well, he had it, and he had it more than you're ever going to get it in this world. If you say, if only I could make my mark on this world and receive recognition, and and maybe that would be lasting satisfaction. Maybe that would last even though it's going to be uh, erased in the end. Well, this is his point. I had it. I mean, maybe you're laboring, thinking maybe I can get my name on a plaque on a wall or on the side of a building. This guy built entire cities and was king over them. He had everything you're longing for. And if you say to yourself, well, okay, sure. He pursued pleasure in alcohol and building projects and work and industry and riches and sex. But, but, but maybe, maybe he didn't really ever get it the way I'm going after it. Maybe, maybe he didn't experience these things as deeply as I'm chasing after them. Well, listen to what he says in verses 9 and 10. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. So if you're chasing recognition, he was the greatest. During the, I think, late 80s and early 90s, there were a number of sitcoms for adolescents that um, I know I was going to say I had the pleasure of watching. I guess I should just say I watched. And um, in them you have this, this kind of theme that happens again and again, and it's this uh, school-age boy, and he's sitting at his desk, and the teacher's lecturing, but he's daydreaming. You know, and in the daydream, he's like the quarterback winning the game, and he walks off the field, and they crown him homecoming king, you know, and, and, and so on and so on. It's like as, as if everything's going right. He's, he's, he's the, the, the highest exalted of the kid at that school. Man, that pales in comparison. That, that's meant to be an exaggerated reality on those TV shows. That pales in comparison to what the preacher's telling us. He actually was the greatest and surpassed all who were before him. 
He got all the recognition you could get. He adds in verse 9, also my wisdom remained with me. It's not like I, I lost my wisdom. I was still immensely wise. Verse 10, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept from my heart no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in my toil, and this was the reward for all my toil. Again, whatever that is in your life, he had it. He had that man or that woman that you're telling yourself, right? As a woman, if only I had that man. As a man, if only I had that woman. He had that person, that person that you could hold on your side that you feel like is going to bring great value. Right? Sometimes I'm convinced in life that um, people are unfaithful in marriages, not merely for the sake of lust, but sometimes because they're chasing that lasting satisfaction. Because they're telling themselves, if only I had that woman or that man then maybe that would show the world how great I am. That would, that would be this lasting satisfaction. He says, I had it. Wealth, riches, achievement, recognition, fame, and prestige. He had it and more. And what was his conclusion? Verse 11. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. I mentioned last week David Gibson's book, Living Life Backward, which is just an excellent little book. He writes, this is the stuff of secret dreams, fame and fortune, the sky is the limit. And when he gets there, stands back and surveys his empire, it is all quite pointless, meaningless, a chasing after the wind. He has actually gained nothing. Thus says the man who owned everything. But maybe at this point, we want to push back and we want to say, you know, no, really? I mean, really? Is it, is it nothing? Really? Did he gain nothing? I mean, surely in all his pursuits of, of this and that, surely at least he acknowledged, for example, that the life I lived of wisdom is better than the life I would have lived by pursuing folly. Well, he does acknowledge that in verses 12 through 14. He acknowledges wisdom, there's a certain way of living life that is better. We all know that. Verse 12, so I considered wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what's already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. So, so at this point, it's, it's not as if he's saying there isn't a better way to live than another way. No, no, there is. We all know that to be true. We know that the guy who's, who's you know, pursuing uh, drug addiction and, and sex and all that and destroying himself, we know that that's a foolish way to live and there actually is a better way to live. So, so it's not as if he's saying there's not one way that's better than another. Of course there is. We all know that. But what he's diving after is the lie we often tell ourselves that there is lasting satisfaction. There's lasting gain. And he says, listen, if that's what you're after, then yes, the life of wisdom is better. There's more gain in the life of wisdom than there is in the life of foolishness. But neither one of them provides ultimate gain. Why? Because if you're only living for this life only, then in the end, both the wise and the foolish person dies. Verses the end of 14 through 17. 
Just 14, the wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet, and yet, I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen also to me. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this is also vanity. For, as, for of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten, how the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after the wind. Again, chase all the wisdom, all the learning, all the education you can get. Yes, there's a way to live that's better than another, but if you're chasing that which, which, which your heart is so tempted to do and grasp lasting gain, then the wise man's going to die just like the fool. And that's my first point from last week. We're all going to die and likely be forgotten. Such is reality. Now we could push back a little more. And we could say, well, okay, okay, sure, sure, sure. He's pursued wisdom, he's pursued riches, he's pursued sex, he's pursued pleasure, he's pursued alcohol, he's pursued building projects and work and industry, he's done all that. Okay, fine, fine, fine. But, 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 but I guess something that is a bit more altruistic, I, mean, I, I think, what if we actually live our lives in the here and now for the purpose of amassing what we can so that we can give it to the next generation? Right? I mean, then... Wouldn't it feel like you have this lasting gain? Wouldn't that provide lasting contentment? Wouldn't that kind of satisfy this need that I have in my soul that my heart craves and longs for? We actually takes up that point as well. In verse 18, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me and who knows whether he will be wise or fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I have toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave up my heart to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. So he says, really, there there are few problems. When you, you you get all of this, you could live your life amassing something and give it to a man who did not work for it. That alone, we just know from experience, often doesn't go well. We've seen many a person's life ruined because they've been handed goods instead of having to work for them. It seems to, 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 to exasperate every flaw we have within us. We've seen that, but that's not it. He says there's more. You could, you could do all of this and use your wisdom and your knowledge and your skill, and you could work and you could toil and you could give it, and you could say, now I've been able to give to the next generation something that's lasting. Maybe, maybe, maybe they will have it, and by giving it to them, I will have this lasting contentment. But he said, no, 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 just think about that as well. You, you could amass all of this and give it to them, and then they could just, just take it and be foolish and, and waste it. And if you say, well, you know, surely that rarely happens. I found that as I studied through Ecclesiastes, I need no, look no further than my own family experiences to confirm these. My mom, 
she had two brothers. Uh, one, of, one of them is still living. Uh, the other died when he was young in a car accident. Um, he's from Western Kentucky. Again, just, just in, in some sense, lived a pretty modest life. I uh, got a job, you know, just working at a factory or something like this, right? Married, uh, had two kids. I mean, I guess you could say in one sense, it's the American dream, right? He's married, raising a boy and a girl, you know, all is well. Uh, he was amassing, amassing great wealth in life, but my mom remembers and actually conveyed to me a conversation they had one day when he said to her, Judy, today I've done something. That, that, that this is, has brought me great pleasure because here's what I've done. I've purchased a life insurance policy that's pretty sizable. I actually told this story, I think, 12 years ago when I was preaching through Ecclesiastes. Um, and so he said this to my mom. Now I know that no matter what happens in my life, at least my children are going to be well taken care of. Well, here's what happened in his life. He was driving, ironically. He was, he was on the road, actually, in front of where my parents live. And another car crossed the median and hit him head on. Both, both drivers died. Um, his wife, rightly so, cashed in on the life insurance policy and had great wealth. Everything that he had labored for, this hope, now his children being taken care of. She spent the next two years of her life using that money to pursue a drug habit so that at the end of that two years, there was not a penny left. I don't think his children to this day ever saw a cent of that life insurance policy. This is the point the preacher's making. Brothers and sisters, if we only hope on this side of eternity, we only seek lasting gain on this side of eternity, then neither wisdom nor riches, nor prestige, nor fame, nor building projects, nor recognition, nor sex, nor pleasure. Give it. On this side of eternity, on this side of Genesis 3, the world is just not made to provide that. His pursuit of lasting game came to one conclusion. All is vanity. It's like a puff of smoke chasing after the wind. He speaks from experience. So what then does he leave us with? Is he saying, therefore, despair? No. Here's his conclusion. Point three. The conclusion. See life as gift, not gain. See life as gift, not gain. Verses 24 through 26 of chapter 2. There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat? And who can, or who can have enjoyment. For the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner he's given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a, and a striving after the wind. You see, the, the, the conclusion that the preacher reaches here is all that he's described, this pursuit of trying to find lasting gain and lasting satisfaction, lasting happiness and contentment from this world, that's how the unbeliever lives. And what he's saying to us is that you and I don't have to live that way. What he's saying, though, is more than that. He's not only saying, don't waste your life on an empty pursuit. He's actually saying, don't waste your life on an immoral pursuit, a sinful pursuit. You see, 
This is what he's saying. When, when he describes this, he says, listen, that's the life of the sinner. That, that's the busy work that, that God has given the sinner, the one who's never able to, to look to Christ, the one who's never, never able in God to find his satisfaction and his gain and, and know that this world is not his home. The sinner lives like I've described. The sad thing is that even as believers, we're sometimes tempted to live that way. And so the preacher's trying to save us from it. He's saying, look, I'm not only saying it's empty, I'm saying it's sinful. And yet that's not the last word. If you can take this life and you can see this life as a gift from God to be enjoyed and not that which will provide your lasting satisfaction, your lasting gain, your ultimate hope, that life can be enjoyed. In other words, the preacher's saying, I want you to accept your limitations and the limitations that the world can give you. And I want you to recognize that God gives good gifts to be enjoyed. This means that you can have that project at work that you know, yes, will one day be, be erased like a sandcastle on the beach, but you can have that project at work and you can just say, look, this is, this is not something that's a stepping stone to my lasting gain and happiness. This is not something that's finally going to make me mean something. But it's something that's good that God's given me that I enjoy. And you can enjoy it. You can have a good day with your wife and not turn your wife into that idol that's meant to provide you everything that makes you finally something, but instead see her merely as a gift from God to be enjoyed and enjoy her in the present, and it can be a glorious thing. You see what he's doing in verses 24 through 26? He's moving our perspective from seeing life under the sun on this side of eternity from gain into gift. So let me give you, I don't have these on the screen, but just kind of two words of application here. And I'll wrap it up quickly as my voice is going out. Number one, don't try to get out of this life more than it can give. Don't try to get out of this life more than it can give. Don't turn your life in this world as a pursuit of gain. That's how unbelievers live by necessity. It's not how you and I have to live. We don't have to see this world as gain. We don't have to sit in every moment hoping now maybe I'll get the recognition or the praise or the riches or the pleasure or whatever that my soul has been so craving. In fact, even if we take good things from God and, 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 and we make the enjoyment of them somehow, maybe the enjoyment of them also will give me that lasting gain and satisfaction. I think that's why Solomon ends the very text. Even when he's making his positive application, he still ends writing at the end of verse 26. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. He's saying, I'm not saying that 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 enjoyment of that project at work or the enjoying the day with your wife or enjoying that good meal. I'm not saying it's going to last forever. It's not. Don't try to turn it into something it's not. If you do, it's also just striving after the wind. It's also that puff of smoke. So don't try to extract from this world more than it can give, but just see it as as, as joy. Don't try to extract from it more than it can give. Number two, see all things in life as gifts from God not merely about your achievements. See all things in life as gifts from God, not merely your achievements. You know, it is interesting. From 114 to 223, there is no mention of God. It's only in verse 24 when the preacher brings God back into the mix that joy returns. 
And I think that's by intention. I think this is one of the reasons he says the pursuit of trying to find your lasting gain under the sun on the side of eternity is a sinful one, an immoral one, because by definition, that is very self-focused, right? If you're just telling yourself, if only I had this or that or could gain this or that, that's by definition very self-consumed, self-focused, self-centered. So it's only when, when, when the self-focusedness is replaced with seeing life as a gift from God, seeing even the good things and the achievements in your life as gifts from God that joy can return. So yes, what he's saying is you can write a book and people can read it and they can speak well of you and say, thanks for that book you wrote. It was very helpful. And you can see it as a gift from God and just say, God, thank you for that book. Don't, don't, don't try to turn it into a stepping stone whereby, oh, I've finally gotten all this that my soul craves. No, 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 no. It's just a gift from God to be enjoyed. It's like a sandcastle on the beach. It'll be gone a few generations from now. Nobody will know who you are then. But in the present, you can just enjoy it as a gift from God, not as something that's going to lead to your eternal remembrance. Now, we can say more. As I said, we're only at part two in this five-part message I'm working through the book. We can say more. What we can say is, that there is a world to come, that one day Jesus Christ who lived and died and was raised for us so that by faith we can have forgiveness of sins and life in him, that one day we're going to be raised from our graves to live eternally. It's one reason I wanted to have the text read earlier from Matthew chapter 6, do not store for yourselves treasures here, but treasures there. I want to remind us, we can say much more than what the preacher has said to this point. We can say live your life because you, in storing up realities and glories for a life that you know is to come. But at this point, the preacher wants us to see, even on this side of eternity, don't turn this world into an idol factory trying to extract from it more than it can give. But just see it on this side of eternity as a gift from God to be enjoyed. And enjoy every moment and every blessing and every achievement as a gift from God in the moment. Nothing more. Don't try to press on past the joy to make it about your uplifting, about your satisfaction. But just live there, knowing that one day Jesus Christ will return, and there is we will know all the eternal gain and the glorious satisfaction that our souls long for will be ours in Christ, even as it is ours in Christ now. And so uh, what we're going to do Uh, as we do at the end of every service, is just take a moment of silence and then come to the table. And one of the blessings of coming to the table every week and eating of the bread and drinking from the cup is we remind ourselves of that which is unseen. That Christ who lived and died and was raised for us, whom we can't see in front of us. And the realities of eternity, which we cannot see in front of us, we remind ourselves that we really do have lasting gain. We really do have lasting significance and lasting remembrance. But it is found in God who will not forget us. It is found in God who treasures us as his own. It is found in God who has said to us, in Christ, you're heirs of the world. One of the reasons that we do not have to live as unbelievers seeking our gain in this world, which will be like sand running through their hands, is that we already have it all in Christ who lived and died and was raised. So if you're an unbeliever this morning, you've never placed your faith in Christ, I want to invite you to turn from this meaningless pursuit and look to the one who lived and died and was raised. If you'd like to talk to me or 
somebody else out of the service about placing your faith in Christ, I would love to talk to you. Uh, and then make that public in baptism. This is how the Bible says we make public, that we've been united with Christ by faith, that we're Christians. If you are a believer and you've professed your faith in baptism, you're in a church that's faithfully preaching the gospel, then in a moment after we take our moment of silence, as the ushers and musicians come forward, we're going to distribute the bread and distribute the cup. And I just want to invite all of us, you as well, um, to eat of this bread. We'll eat of it together. And then we'll drink together. And it'll be our way of corporately again proclaiming, Lord, we have heard the call of your word. And by faith, our answer is yes and amen. We will obey. And so let's let that be our public response this morning to God's word. So let's take a moment of silence now as we prepare to come to the table.